Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Uh, Joining us again for the CIO Strategy Snapshot Conversation, glad to welcome back Jason Dreho, uh, the Head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So Jason, welcome back. Hope you had a nice weekend and thank you for joining us here on a Monday morning. Thank you, Daniel. It's good to be here on Monday. So, Jason, as our listeners have, I'm sure, picked up on over the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about recession fears. Those have been picking up and investor sentiment, it does remain quite bearish to that latter point. We're seeing evidence of that in market returns with defensives leading the way last week. So, Jason, from your vantage point, why are these recession fears on the rise? Well, first and probably foremost is that, you know, the Fed has become increasingly hoggish, you know, saying that it wants to go into restrictive territory to bring inflation down. And I think that's fueling concerns about whether the Fed could ultimately can engineer a soft landing and at the same time as bringing inflation down. So I think there's certainly some doubt that the Fed can do that, that they will over tighten and this will trigger a recession, maybe a mild one, but, you know, that, that's kind of the fear. And sort of the Fed's track record at engineering soft landings is, you know, hit or miss. And, you know, more often than not, they probably miss uh, then, the, you know, strike the line exactly. So that's kind of, you know, the number one concern. You know, on top of that, there's just growing worries about how high inflation, high gas prices will affect consumer spending. Uh, you know, the spending won't wind up, you know, falling. We're certainly not be able to keep up with inflation. So the consumer that has been so strong on this recovery and a key driver of the expansion thus far, if that starts to weaken, then, you know, that gets another kind of pillar under the line of the economy that gets uh, kind of taken away. And then this is a little bit more anecdotal, but there's a little bit of chatter within the trucking and freight industries of how prices uh, for trucking and shipping have been dropping dramatically. Uh, when this happens, it often the industry often goes into recession. So people look at that as a sign of like, aha, demand is falling. Uh, the demand for trucks, therefore, is falling. And uh, inventories are building, and this is a sign of the economy slowing and weakening. So you kind of you know, add up these things about Fed that's getting hawkish and you know, raising the rates of cool inflation, worries about the consumer, and that sort of worries about consumers sort of dovetail these concerns about the trucking industry having to over capacity and going into recession, potentially portending a broader recession. All that's kind of you know kind of brought together to I think make investors quite bearish. And, and just this is anecdotal, but some informal surveys I saw of institutional investors last week, you know, put that the probability of a recession either this year or next year at around 60 percent, or 60 percent believe a recession will happen you know by the end of next year, which is a pretty high number, all things considered. So I think quite bearish sentiment. I think those are the main reasons why. The chief investment office has had a more balanced view on the economy and has maintained the view that a recession is the risk case, not the base case. That's important to note. What are you basing that view on, Jason? Well, thinking about where the concerns are, the consumer being one, um, ultimately I think the consumer can still be quite resilient in the face of high inflation. Their income growth is quite good. And even at the lowest income level, that's where the highest wage growth is occurring. So an aggregate real wage growth might be negative right now, given how high inflation is, but it might not be negative for the lowest income consumers. There's also been a significant amount of excess savings that have been built up over the past you know, two years, still in the neighborhood of $2 trillion, and household balance sheets are in really good shape. Uh, and thus far, and it's only been sort of a short time period, we've seen the most recent surge in gas prices that began right around the beginning of March. But the data that's starting to come in for March suggests that consumer spending is still holding up quite resiliently. You know, we can see that with credit card data where it is up 8% in some cases this year versus last year. Now, when you adjust for inflation, it's closer to flat. But the comp that we're looking at this year versus last year is difficult because people were getting stimulus checks starting in later March and they were spending immediately. So there was a massive surge in spending last year. So to be even holding pace to where we were a year ago, 
that's a positive sign. Then if you start to look at where the money is being spent, there is this shift from goods spending to services. So, you know, tr- uh, spending on uh, travel, like airfares, hotels, lodging, all that is surging, in some cases, at 30 or 40% year over year. You're seeing a bit of a moderation in spending goods. So that that's actually ultimately a positive because for the economy to sort of function normally, we need to have this sort of transition away from goods spending to services spending. And, and that last point on sort of this normalization of, of sort of the way people are spending, in some ways it's reflective of a lot of parts of the economy. When the pandemic hit, we had all sorts of distortions uh, in terms of demand, how people shifted the demand because they couldn't go out. We had distortions in supply because production couldn't you know, be produced or goods couldn't be produced, and they couldn't get to where they needed to go. So this is a factor, a major factor, why inflation has been high because we've seen a massive increase in the price of, of certain goods. As the economy normalizes, we're starting to see uh, you know, sort of balance coming back into different markets. Uh, so the trucking industry is a good example. Very strong demand for 18 months for goods, a lack of truck drivers. Freight rates rose, so you can make more money for your truck driver. That induced more supply. Now there's more supply and demand is sort of normalizing because people are now buying less goods and they're buying more services. That causes prices to decline. It's a sort of a normal trend. But if you look at it just sort of in recent patterns, it looks like this is a, dis- you know, a concerning sign. But I think you could also say this is more of a normalization. The normalization of the economy is ultimately good um, because it's disinflationary. Uh, as you kind of take away these distortions, as the growth kind of gets back towards trend. Um, but you're asking ultimately, you know, why we're sort of, you know, positive on or more balanced on growth. I think those are the reasons why we would certainly acknowledge that there is the risk that the Fed get over tightened. There's the risk of external shocks, you know, the lockdowns that are taking place in China. Those could persist, and that would have supply chain issues. You know, the war in Ukraine could further escalate, you know, gas prices and energy prices, or there could be outright tipping Europe into recession, which would ultimately weigh on the U.S. growth as well. So I think just it's important to sort of balance the risks that people are focused on with some of the underlying trends, which are actually quite positive for, for the overall growth outlook. Jason, as you suggested, inflation, of course, serves as the other big macro risk. If we look ahead to this week, tomorrow, in fact, on Tuesday, we will receive the March print for CPI, and consensus currently expects a rise of 8.4%. So will this, Jason, be the peak, and how fast could it decline? So 8.4% is up from 7.9% uh, from February, if we get to 8.4%. Um, it's likely to be the peak, although we can't rule out the possibility there could be additional inflationary shocks. You know, oil could you know, certainly surge higher. So the next month could go up. But if you look at the combination of oil prices that have sort of stabilized, and if you look in the, in the U.S., the average price per gallon of gasoline across the country is actually down from, you know, at the peak in March. If that sort of stays stable for April, May, you know, going forward throughout the rest of the, the second quarter, uh, you combine that with favorable year-over-year base effects, so this is the time of last year when inflation surged. So the comp is actually gets a little bit easier now. So that's actually going to bring some inflation readings down. And then some of these normalization effects that I sort of alluded to before, that should also be sort of disinflation and helping to moderate inflation you know, over the next few quarters, such that by the end of the year, inflation can be you know, 3 to 4%. And we're seeing that in things like durable goods, piece inflation that, you know, while it's still positive year over year on a month over month basis, it's now down to zero. And that's important. That means ultimately inflation on that area is going to come closer to zero. And it's consistent with the demand for goods you know, cooling off. We're seeing used cars prices are down for three months in a row. And as auto production increases, that should further accelerate that decline. So used cars that had been very inflationary for the past year, they can actually start to be disinflationary and bring inflation down. 
Now, that's positive. I just be cautious on inflation and, and sort of our confidence in predicting it because, you know, we and many people have been sort of, you know, wrong and not underestimated how high inflation would get. And inflation is just historically notoriously difficult to predict. So well, the trend should be lower from this point forward, just how quickly it moderates uh, and, and under what forces and factors. I think that's still a lot of uncertainty. And I think that's where, again, it sort of warrants a little bit of balance between being optimistic in the moderation, but also caution that we could be wrong about just how quickly it moderates. Well, Jason, thank you for helping us to manage expectations with respect to inflation. In the few minutes we have remaining, Jason, maybe we can turn over to asset allocation. I do understand that there were changes to recommended positioning in equity sectors as well as U.S. fixed income. Can you walk our listeners, our clients through those changes and the rationale behind them? So I've just described an economic environment where we see kind of risks are balanced on the growth front from downside risks, but also it's not upside risk, at least, you know, less concerned about some of the downside risks. I think that's now reflected in some of the changes we made in the U.S. equity sector positioning. Uh, I think before it was a little bit biased towards more cyclical versus defensive. So some of the changes now have taken that down to be more balanced between cyclicals and defensive. Specifically, um, we downgraded financials and industrials from, uh, from a most preferred status down to neutral. And those are two cyclical sectors. We also upgraded utilities, which had been least preferred, up to neutral. Utilities is a defensive sector. In healthcare, that also has defensive properties. We've upgraded from neutral to most preferred. So when you net it all out, the remaining sector positioning still has you know, con- um, consumer discretionary and energy as, as most preferred, and those tend to be more cyclical. And stables is an underweight, and that is a, you know, um, you know, a more defensive sector. So the whole point of this is to be a little more balanced, um, you know, but not you know, too cautious. Uh, we still think earnings will be quite resilient. We still think growth will be okay. But we acknowledge that there are some downside risks in our position. We wanted to kind of reflect that. And that's what the changes in the sectors, you know, do overall. This is sort of a similar rationale to having a more balanced view on the, on the outlook on what happened in terms of the fixed income changes. We had been recommending a position in, you know, senior loans funded out of U.S. government bonds or treasuries uh, for almost two years. And it's performed very well. The rationale behind it was we expected rates to rise and senior loans are floating rate instruments. So as other fixed income would be hit hard by a rise in rates leading to lower you know, bond prices, senior loans are relatively immune to that. So as we've seen rates rise over the past couple of years, and this year in particular, loans have been actually been quite resilient to that. Now we're at the stage where we think the markets are kind of fully pricing, at least our expectations for what the Fed will do, which is multiple hikes this year, you know, a couple of 50 basis point hikes, and ultimately maybe hiking rates to around 3% or even a little bit higher. So it's sort of pricing in that view. So which at this point, we think rates are probably near the top of the range, barring some sort of news in terms of inflation being sticky or if the Fed wanted to go even more hawkish, which is a possibility, but it's unlikely to happen soon. So if rates have sort of reached their kind of, you know, the top of a range for the time being, that would suggest that rate risk that made, you know, senior loans attractive, sort of less relevant to protect against. But on top of that, again, just to get a little more cautious, by you know, you know, closing out the position of loans. You know, one area that we like is also short of maturity, one to three year investment grade corporate bonds. Also less sensitive rates, but it gets kind of an up in quality trade going from loans, which are a little bit riskier, to investment grade corporate bonds, which are a little less risky. So again, taking a more balanced view on the economy. So none of this is to suggest you know a bearish view. It's more of a neutral view that we've had on equities you know for the past month or so. Because there is a lot of uncertainty you know, and the paths that we can go from here are are you know many and varied. And until we kind of get through uh, a period of time where investors can become comfortable that inflation will moderate and the Fed will raise rates without triggering a recession, you know, risk assets are likely to be range-bound. 
Um, but we're ultimately going to take the direction of travel, at least for this year, you know, is to the upside. But that may take a little while for the investors and for the market to become comfortable with that view as well. Well, Jason, thank you for the pulse on investor sentiment, setting this macro stage for the week, and of course, walking us through CIO's latest guidance around asset allocation. Appreciate the insights as always, Jason, and wish you a nice week ahead. You too, Dan. Enjoy the holiday short week. Today, we've been joined by Jason Dreho, the head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. As a reminder to our clients and our listeners, the UBS Chief Investment Office does author a variety of publications and blogs that touch on timely market developments, asset classes, and portfolio allocation. Top of the Morning is part of the UBS Market Moves podcast channel, which is available where podcasts are found, including on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.